0: Content notices for this episode include violence against animals and graphic violence against women in our discussion of the film and also police violence and racism in our discussion of the deep dive. Greetings, you are listening to Horror Nerds at Church, a podcast where we take a deep dive into a horror film and talk about what it can teach us about God, the Bible, and each other. My name is Pace and I am the mayor of Haddonfield, Illinois, the ever-growing suburb.
1: That, that must be a really gnarly job. <laughs> And I am Joe, and I am the regular, regular size version of supersized Joe, who apparently has enough strength to knock down your security guard shack just by pounding on the exterior.
0: <laughs> I don't want to know about your pounding on exterior. <laughs> so.
1: we'll, we'll explain that reference later on. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I was, is for me, it was either being the mayor of Haddonfield, or I was like, or maybe I could say I'm a white horse. But then I'm like, uh, that makes no sense, either yeah. as a reference or within the film itself.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean,
0: <laughs> before this movie, the only white horse I knew was the bar. That's <laughs> yes, the oldest gay bar, continually run gay bar in the country, right in Indeed.
1: Oakland. Indeed. Indeed. Yes, beloved. Mm-hmm. And I, I lived just about down the street from there.
0: I've only been there twice, I want to say, mm. my entire time at Berkeley. I feel like I should have been there more. Yeah, yeah, no, it's it, it's fun. So, announcements. Do you have any announcements? Well, How have you been? Co- I've been good. I, um,
1: so right now, at this point in my life, I have two passions. Number one is this podcast, and number two is working on my thesis in seminary, and Broadly speaking, it's an it's a capitalist critique, <laughs> right? And this week, when you know you and I weren't brainstorming uh, horror movies and ideas for our show, I started reading two really interesting books. Maybe you'll check them out alongside all of the horror research we've been doing. One is a new release called "Work Won't Love You Back." by sarah jaffe and it is about how we are all overworking ourselves and slowly killing ourselves actually that's a really good premise for a horror movie (laughs) (laughs) and then the second one um the second one is called eloquent rage a black feminist discovers her superpower by the uh Social. uh, What did I say socialist? She's gonna, she's gonna hate me (laughs) Uh, by the intellectual uh, Brittany Cooper. Mm -hmm. And that, that's exactly what the title sounds like. You know, Um, it's about how to put, not just to put our anger as, um, as uh, marginalized people to work, but to, to let people know that we are angry and you can't tell us to not be angry. Also, I also want to emphasize that eloquent rage is specifically about black women's experience with, Mm. with rage. So I I don't want to try and take up space there, but um, you know, having been born and raised, um, There are things about this book that are very familiar. So yeah, I've been I've been reading those two books and working on my thesis. And when I'm not doing that, I am writing lengthy essays on the letterbox app (laughs) about (laughs) how
0: problematic Rob Zombie is. Fun times, yeah. (laughs) We'll get into that. So how about you listener? You may remember that last week, Joe completely changed his mind about rob zombie <laughs> and now has the pendulum swung back the other way we'll find oh, out Oh my goodness gracious so let's see what have i been up to i've been you're um, a busy know, person yeah i i know we talk about you use this time to talk about some non-horror stuff in our lives but like honestly i've just been going down this rabbit hole um of horror films like catching nice. up on some of the films that i haven't Seen before, like ones that everybody talks about, are kind of like the cult classics. Yeah. So I've seen, and all these I'm just like loving and want to visit on our podcast sometime. So I, I'm listen, excited. Take this as like maybe future hope that we'll cover these. But like, <laughs> I started with um the audition, which oh! is a Japanese <laughs> film. Really bonkers. Um, kind of, it's kind of like the beginning of the genre of subgenre of horror called torture porn. Thank you, Japan. (laughs) Yeah. So it, so it's, it's interesting. It's about this guy. Well, I won't get too much into it, but basically it's about this, um, young woman who takes revenge on this guy who was kind of soliciting her services under false pretenses, but there's a whole lot of like ethical ambiguity there does he deserve the punishment that's coming to him cuz you kind of sympathize for him and stuff like that so so it's this whole thing um then i also watched this movie called um under the skin with scarlett johansson oh this one is very strange she i think she's supposed to be an alien like it never explains it. it's based on a book and in the book the main character is an alien who takes on human form to kind of study humans but Also, like you harvest their organs or something, some like sci fi weird alien invasion plot, (laughs) but. Um, the movie doesn't really explain any of that. It just kind of leaves it up for imagination. Yeah, it's really strange. There's some full frontal male nudity, which doesn't happen in film. So yeah. if you, so it's good to check out just for that. Um, <laughs> and yeah, right. But it, it it's a really interesting movie. And then I've also been catching up on some Cronenberg. I watched Ooh. Videodrome and The Brood. Both of those are bonkers. So. And then the last thing I watched was Sleepaway Camp, and oh my god, we have got to do Sleepaway Camp on this podcast. It is so strange. <laughs> I I already read up on it on
1: Wikipedia, and, and, and yeah, you're right, it does sound pretty strange. It, it's also its own little
0: franchise, right? It spawns yep. some sequels? Yep, so that might be one of our seasons, we might have that as the foundation for one of our seasons um but it's interesting similar to halloween there are different plot lines the sequels follow yeah so um but anyway so that's all that uh also just one announcement i want to let everyone know about is at the request of one of our listeners uh they asked if we could start including content Uh, warnings or content notifications verbally in episodes up until this point Mm -hmm. we've had them in the episode description but um i see but especially for like our mini episodes and stuff where we can get into some deep stuff based on people's real life horror stories i can see why it's good to have a verbal warning as well so yeah going forward we're going to have that you should have already heard it. it should be after our introduction um but behind the scenes what joe and i are doing is we are going to record the verbal inset at the end of our podcast um hopefully trying to remember everything we've been doing and then our dear editor will insert it um after our introduction
1: yeah that great 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 suggestion
0: yep and uh, um so going forward there'll be verbal ones we'll probably re-upload them for past episodes but for the time being um just check out the episode description for our back catalog of episodes if you want the content warning because it's it's already there. Um, but as it'll take time for us to re-upload episodes and stuff. Sure, so I love that we have delivering. a back.
1: I love that we have a back catalog. I feel like we're so established. <laughs> I know we're already out
0: on episode thirteen. If you can believe goodness. it, Jesus
1: Christ! I know.
0: But yeah, it's it's a lot. But yeah, so only two more Halloween episodes. We have 2018, and then we have a retrospective. And then I guess we're leaving Haddonfield behind. I am very scared to think about what Haddonfield will look like
1: when we go back to it. Is it going to have a space station? Right. (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> Did we get michael in space finally
1: <laughs> that town is expanding rapidly with every halloween movie that comes out who knew that
0: Haddonfield was like the center of economic recovery <laughs> yes for real okay so in case you haven't cut on today's film is rob zombies halloween 2 came out in 2009 and it is the second movie to be called halloween 2 the first one came out in 1981 mm. uh written by john carpenter and deborah hill uh directed by rick rosenthal who also directed halloween resurrection but this is the rob zombies is it a remake of halloween 2 is it a sequel to halloween his first halloween is kind mm-hmm. of a little bit of both it's kind of neither yeah. So we'll kind of, we'll kind of go there. Um, but just behind the scenes trivia, because I always try to share a little bit about how this movie got made. Mm. Um, Rob Zombie, after the first one, did not want to come back to do Halloween two. Maybe he should have done that instead. Right. <laughs> so yeah, he 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 really kind of had a disappointing time working on the first one, especially with studio involvement. We talked a lot about how the Weinstein's and even the cods kind of sometimes they're warring camps opposite each other and yet they especially dimension seems to meddle a lot in the production process of these films and so basically he was invited to come back uh because like they kept coming back and said will you please give us halloween 2? because all the scripts that were being written stuff just kind of sucked so zombie eventually decided to come back one of the promises that he was made was from the Akkads who basically told him that if he comes back, he can do whatever he wants with this film. And so he mm. did. And it's kind Indeed. of its own. Yeah, it's 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 its own thing. It's really mm, it's
1: liberating it's, in yeah. the in, in the sense that he took some liberties
0: with this and ran away with it. Yeah. So <laughs> Right off the bat, this is going to probably be a controversial episode among fans, because I feel like this one even has more of a controversial, like people, this one is even more a source of controversy in fans' opinions than his first remake, because some people love this movie. And one of the reasons they think it's among the best entries in the Halloween franchise is because it is very unique, and it Mm -hmm. really goes its own way, which is great if you like that. Um, another thing is a lot of people commend how it really does not shy away or back away from showing the ramifications of trauma in flurry yes. And I will say that is something else I agree, I agree with. I think that's mm-hmm. good to see and unique to see in horror films to kind of check back in. But we've also seen that with H2O and we've seen that in Halloween 2018. So there are other ways it can be done too. And right. Is this the film that to really treat Laurie's ongoing trauma with the seriousness and gravity it deserves? I don't think so. I'll mm. say that. Um, mm. But the other thing, but the other thing too, is um, a lot of people just don't like this movie for a lot of good reasons too. So we'll kind of mm. get through mm. all of that as we go. It's, uh, it's a brutal f- one.
1: It's a brutal one.
0: Yeah. What's your first memory of this film? I know this is the first time you've seen it, but um, yeah. It is the first time I've seen it, and I
1: will say, quite frankly, that I had no memory of it when it came out in two thousand nine. Uh, there were so many things that were going on at that time. I was really involved in a lot of political stuff, and I wasn't going to the movies that often. So, although I was aware of of zombies' first Halloween, I don't think I even knew there was a, that he had done a sequel.
0: Interesting, yeah. I this this was a fair. This made a decent amount of money. The first Halloween, um, remake made a good amount of money too. Um, this it was more successful than Halloween two, but Halloween two was still successful enough that there was a third installment in the works. Um, and we'll talk a little bit more about why that never came to pass next week when we do halloween 2018 i Um, know
1: why i know why
0: (laughs) it is going to be called halloween 3d can you imagine
1: i i
0: okay i'm gonna save that for next week too yeah (laughs) so um yeah but uh so it's a successful enough film but i i agree with you i don't remember it when it came out like i didn't Mm -hmm. remember seeing much Previews or anything about it. I'm not sure it was advertised well, or maybe it was, but I was also in my first year, second year, second year of my master's program at that point. So, Mm, yeah, I was a little busy, but I will. You
1: You might have a point though. I feel like the first zombie movie was, I think, and I think I said this last week, I feel like that movie was really marketed quite
0: well. It seemed to be everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, so it's it's interesting that this one, and also I don't think as many people saw this one. I think a lot of, like, it did modestly okay at the box office, but if you talk to a lot of people, a lot of fans may have only seen this one once when it was in theaters or something. It's not, it doesn't seem to be one of the films that is well remembered mm-hmm. in the franchise.
1: Um, oh, should we clarify for the audience that what we're talking about, what, the movie that we screened was a director's cut?
0: Yeah, so we should say, uh, that that's a good point. We are today talking about both the theatrical and the director's cut, but the director's cut is the oh, more right, right. well-known of the two and yeah. is Zombie's own preferred version. He has even said in interviews and stuff that he does not at all really enjoy the ending of the theatrical release of the film.
1: Interesting. Yeah, so you you saw both. Versions, but I only watch the director's cut with you. And yeah. as you'll recall afterwards, I I had no desire to visit the theatrical cut.
0: Yeah, the biggest there's. Oh, I'm um, just quick for our listeners at home. If you only saw one or the other, I'll just basically do a quick rundown of the differences. The biggest difference is in the um theatrical cut versus director's cut the director's cut has additional footage of laurie basically living into her trauma and her grief and so it really shows a different side of laurie the theatrical cut kind of like it still shows her in therapy and stuff after it but it still it cuts out a lot of the scenes so like for instance when annie and laurie have a fight at breakfast the theatrical cut cuts it before it goes into the fight but the director's cut keeps going so you see their fight play out um and the other big difference is um the end of the movie but beyond that there it's more or less the same okay well hmm
1: yeah the director's cut is sounding you know as as much as i had a very not kind opinion of this movie the director's cut succeeds in that area in terms of showing the effects of of trauma i should add too that it's it seems to be broadly accepted that the director's cut is the version of the movie that should be watched like it's the definitive i know that's uh screenrant.com what a really good piece um advocating for the director's cut and i want to make the distinction that I didn't have to like this movie in order to say you should just watch the director's cut. If mm-hmm. if you have to sit through Rob Zombie's Halloween 2, watch the director's <laughs> cut.
0: <laughs> yeah, I will say that kind of similar to the last one, it is almost easier to find the director's cut than it is to find the theatrical cut. Although recently I've noticed the theatrical cut has popped up a few more places for streaming and to rent and stuff, but... For a long time, you could really only find the theatrical cut on the director's cut on um, DVD and Blu-ray and home video release. But now both are starting to make their rounds. But I agree with you, Joe. Definitely, if you're only going to watch one and you have to watch this movie, watch the director's cut. It's about 14 minutes longer. All that footage is better at telling a story. It's the version to watch. It does not necessarily make it a good movie. Similar to our (laughs) review of Halloween 6 when we said, watch the producer's cut. It's not a great movie, but it's better than the actual movie. Right, right.
1: It was was definitely the better movie, and I still didn't like it. (laughs) So, you know, two truths can
0: exist at the same time. (laughs) Yep. So the ending, which we'll get to when we get there, is the biggest difference beyond that like i said it's just a little bit of you can see a little bit more of Lori's trauma and then you also see a little bit more of sheriff Brackett being devastated by grief and you see a little bit more yes. of this being an asshole aside from yes. that it's about the the most of the movies are about the same most
1: you the know movies. yeah and and uh while we're on the subject of how uh trauma is much more uh the treatment it's is given is much more respectful and accurate for Lori. I was also surprised at how much coverage Sheriff Brackett got. And I I'm I am surprised at how Brad Durf makes this character stand out in all his humanness. And I'm surprised only because I'm so used to him playing genre characters mm-hmm. elsewhere in the horror world and I think this is the first time I've ever watched Brad Dorf play how do I put this a person <laughs> you yeah. know like someone who's just like us he's not like a you know possessed doll or he's not <laughs> a um he's not a a, a beta zoid trapped on the other side of the galaxy <laughs>
0: Or Grima Worm Tongue or whatever from Word right. Word. Yeah, yes, I agree that there are a few things in this movie that I think are really, really well done, and I think the Sheriff Brackett piece, in yeah. how it's acted, how it's written, all of it, really well done. So the the chemistry with Brackett and um, Annie and
1: and Lori. i sorry to interrupt you, I but I was just so impressed, especially with that. Um, that uh, scene when when they're eating around the dinner table it's it yeah. was just
0: yeah yeah yep and of course danielle harris returns to play annie Cat, scout compton returns to play Lori. Mm-hmm. Uh we get uh, malcolm mcdowell returns to play loomis in, uh, part <laughs> i'm so <unnecessary>. sorry <laughs> uh taylor main returns to play michael as an adult sherry moon zombie returns to play deborah zombie (laughs) i Mm -hmm. deborah myers in flashbacks slash Mm -hmm. also in weird dream sequences with Mm -hmm. some raccoon makeup going on (laughs) uh margot kidder makes an appearance in this as a therapist who else from the cast am i forgetting Weird Al uh, Yankovic and Chris Hardwick have brief blink or miss at cameos.
1: Yes, they do. You're right. Yeah, blink or miss. Um, I think that's about it.
0: Yeah. So let's go through this movie. Oh, I am forgetting one because she's in the very beginning. Oscar Award winner. I'm looking at Joe's face and there's no recognition on his face. Who who are we missing? We are missing Oscar Award winner octavia spencer
1: yes oh my goodness of course how could i forget so memorable in what the two minutes she was on
0: yes so let's let's go through this film as best as we can (laughs) (laughs) let's yeah it starts off with flashbacks to uh smith's Grove sanitarium to young michael even before that
1: it started with the little note right defining oh, right. right and I, I thought for me that was different from the rest of the franchise. I thought that was interesting,
0: yeah, the first film we get a quote from Dr. Loomis for Halloween right two thousand and seven I mean we yeah get a quote from Loomis, but this one we just get this dictionary. Entry from The Subconscious Psychosis of Dreams, which is a made-up book, first of all. Um, and it says, <laughs> White Horse linked to instinct, purity, and the drive of the physical body to release powerful and emotional forces, like rage with ensuing chaos and destruction. Wait, so that's an interesting point. I, I didn't know until you mentioned it that it's
1: it's not a real book. So is White Horse a real psychological concept?
0: <laughs> I don't think so. Like, in <sighs> the I, I am reading, um, along with our recording of these episodes. I'm reading uh, the book Taking Shape, which I've mentioned before. Which yes. goes into the behind the scenes um, stuff about the film, and it basically said that um, there is no like consensus really about what. I mean, it's all dream stuff, so it's pseudoscientific anyway. Right. But like, basically, the white horse stuff was just made up. And Rob Zombie said as much. It was just made up to kind of tie together. Um, I yeah the to try to kind of try to tie to, together Michael's dreams and Lori's dreams uh, with some sort of visually compelling symbol, which is why they picked the white horse
1: for something that's made up. I I bought it. It sounded psychologically compelling, if not if not valid, and um, it's certainly it's certainly um, is full of much less bullshit than in the Thorn trilogy (laughs) when they were appropriating Druid tradition. I I'm actually, I'm actually a lot more comfortable with zombie making up shit than appropriating shit.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Um, So we got baby Michael, well not baby Michael, but young Michael presented with a gift of a, horse white horse or something from his mom Young michael you look broke. so different since we last yes, saw you. This is a recast we don't have <laughs> was the first guy's name dag i don't know how to say that
1: yeah it's it was uh it was tricky but yeah it is a recast apparently so, he just got taller
0: yeah so this is the part i do not understand they make this huge huge point about how Michael Myers has gotten to this point where he will only wear masks for his sessions with Loomis. Mm-hmm. Why don't you just put a kid, any kid really, with long, greasy blonde hair right. into a mask, and then we wouldn't have to know it's a recast. That's true. I'm wondering. But instead, if... they show this kid maskless the whole time, and he has nowhere near the same amount of presence as nowhere the, as, as Did... date day dig Ferch. i'm so sorry for
1: not pronouncing your name correctly i uh yeah no i i that's a good point but i'm wondering if rob zombie just wanted us to remind the audience that michael myers was once this kid
0: yeah well zombie has said that the reason that that um the, these flashback scenes appears because Michael doesn't speak, of course, the adult Michael. So what yeah. he did to work around that to show some sort of inner dialogue for Michael was to basically have the young child Michael and his mother represent Michael's internal dialogue. So whenever he has these visions oh. it's and you hear young Michael talking to his mom or vice versa, that's adult Michael's internal dialogue apparently in addition oh. to being some weird sort of dream pseudoscience connection he has to Lori. <laughs> interesting what a tangled web we weave
1: mr zombie
0: <laughs> yep so she gives him a horse statue as a gift as a kid then 15 years later we pick up immediately after the first film ended with Lori strode wandering around in shock after um shooting michael she gets found by sheriff Brackett, who Takes her to the hospital. Meanwhile, Michael is being transported to the hospital in an ambulance. The ambulance hits a cow. The cow is mooded. Ca-
1: <laughs> you are awful and accurate at the same time. Cows in movies never seem to li- live very long. See also Twister. Yes.
0: <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, the ca- cow gets killed. Um And so. Michael basically uses that opportunity to be surprised he's alive and he escapes. This film takes um, then we pick up with Laurie at the hospital being worked on. It shows some kind of gruesome stuff like them inserting nails and uh, rods into her arm and stuff like that where it's broken which is kind of showing the grotesque body horror of just our bodies as they are and some of the medical sciences that are used to take care of them which is always interesting when they go into that mm. and then michael shows up at the hospital where nurse octavia spencer Hello. briefly appears. <laughs> yes she gets murdered by michael um her throat gets cut very sad sad only two minutes in the movie <laughs> Yes,
1: yes, and, but, you know the the entire that first minute before the next minute where she's spending time dying, <laughs> <laughs> there, there was a lot packed into that little yeah. uh, little first minute. She was having a conversation with one of her colleagues, and you know I, I I'm not sure if it's the script or Miss um, uh, Octavia herself or a combination of both, but for me, I was very impressed of how much life that character had in the
0: minute she was alive. I know, right? Just a fantastic actress. It's Ma, as I said, we were watching through the movie. Oh,
1: I have opinions about Ma the movie,
0: but, you know, let's keep it... Check out out Joe's lengthy letterbox review (laughs) to see his opinions on Ma. Um, Indeed. So she gets killed. Uh, Then Michael chases Lori through the hospital. She... Leaves the hospital, runs into a guard shack. The guard sees she's in distress and goes out to help her. Locks her in the guard shack to keep her safe. He -hmm. gets murdered by Michael. Then Michael appears, finds her in the guard shack, tears down the guard shack, and is about to kill her. And then, surprise, Lori wakes up. It was all a dream. That, That was...
1: You know, I only started to suspect it was a dream maybe in the last couple of minutes, especially and th- this goes back to what I um how I introduced myself today when uh Michael is trying to break into that security guard structure. Does it have a name actually? The gate. Uh into the the gatehouse and and you know laurie is screaming and, and there's a lot of chaos. And he has like unusual strength that makes it look like there's an earthquake happening and then it just bam hit me this is a dream
0: isn't it yep yep so apparently it's a little confusing um but the part that supposedly where the dream begins is where lori wakes up in the hospital to when she wakes up in her bedroom all that segment is a dream but the stuff that happened before that where she was transported to the hospital and picked up by sheriff Brackett, where michael was in the ambulance and it hit a cow and he escaped all that apparently is not a dream <laughs> then, at least according to rob zombie
1: well that's it's, it's nice to know that a cow really wasn't off here as
0: a result of michael myers <laughs> <laughs> so um We find out now it's two... Well, here's one other difference in the theatrical cut versus the director's cut. Uh The theatrical cut, the film takes place one year after Halloween 2007, so in 2008. Um, In the director's release, it takes place two years after in 2009. I do not know why it's a year difference, but there's a year difference in the setting. Um, And let's see, we see um Lori now because her adopted parents were both murdered by michael and the events of the last film she now lives with sheriff bracket talk about who's trauma. Kind of her adopted father and annie yeah. who was one of her best friends is now essentially her adopted sister they yeah. kind of have a contentious relationship it shows they're both both annie and Lori are survivors of dra- trauma like i said they both kind of are growing They're apart from each other as um they age as well so and Laurie kind of has fallen in with this new crowd of yep. people this bad crowd that Annie dislikes and mentions before about the new Laurie that she and the new act Laurie has which she doesn't like yeah.
1: and I at first I was surprised because uh this Laurie is completely different from the first Halloween but that that feeling of surprise that feeling of who is this person, uh, disappeared as it gelled for me that she has gone through some heavy, heavy shit. And then it started making sense how she would act out. And the tension, too, between Annie and and, and Laurie, it's, you know, like you said, both of them have gone through this ordeal. And I think it's interesting that Rob Zombie decided to just put all of these folks in the same house.
0: Yeah. And at this point, But it's also important to note that laurie does not know that her adopted parents who are murdered in the last film were not her biological parents she still thinks that her biological mom and dad were killed by michael right she does not know that she is michael myers sister right which becomes a plot point because we check in with loomis who apparently survived his head squishing at the end of halloween 2007 (laughs) and he now has this Disgusting mustache, yes. and he is on this. He has written a new book about the events of Halloween. Uh, so it's a sequel to his first book, um, about Michael Myers. Uh, this is, uh, I guess, about the murders. And in yeah. this book, he reveals what was told to him in confidence by Sheriff Brackett, namely mm. that Laurie Strode is a grown-up version of Angel Myers, uh, Michael's young sister Mm. and um loomis is going around basically the talk show circuit and stuff advertising this new book and on the day and the book comes out on halloween of course 2009 Mm -hmm. which is basically when the film takes place so he is releasing the book on the two-year anniversary of the murders by michael myers and he also pulls this like stunt thing where he um goes to the Myers house for like a press junket at the Myers house for basically the release of the book. And so Loomis is basically just grown into this opportunistic asshole who is trying to make money off of this.
1: Yeah. He's become a, He's become a pop psychologist. That's his un- that that is McDowell's unique take on Loomis, whereas the Donald Pleasants Loomis was about solving the mystery, you know, and getting yeah. to the heart of the psycho the
0: psychological manner. Well, it's funny what um Rob Zombie apparently when he was writing it said that he used Dr. Phil as an inspiration for <laughs> his character. <That's, laughs> so speaking of pop psychology. <laughs>
1: oh i'm so sorry i know i'm totally blowing the gain on my mic right now but oh (laughs) that is precious oh my goodness rob zombie you make strange movies but you are a clever person i gotta give you that
0: (laughs) and then we also see another psychologist um as i mentioned before this one is played by margot kidder uh rest in peace I. Great, great margot kidder uh, lane. and so we get some psychological sessions with laurie basically where laurie screams at poor margot kidder and margot kidder yeah, is doing man. a very good job like i've i've worked in clinical settings um mm. as a child and stuff like that similar to you joe so yeah so one of the things that you learn right away is like how to de-escalate situations so i recognize that um, Margo right. doing that and stuff yeah but just some it just kind of gives a lot of color to what laurie is going through um after all this which i think is like i like i said is one of the better aspects of this film uh and then essentially the rest of the movie is um michael starts seeing visions of Deborah and a young version of himself and a white horse basically telling him to go back to Haddonfield and murder yeah. uh, Loomis among other people. Uh, and so he starts going back. He stops at the strip club where his mom used to work and murders everybody there. And then <laughs> he's, he... uh, he's he's going on a tour of the greatest hits looking for Laurie. <laughs> yep. And then he goes to the bracket house to and tries to and essentially kills Annie and then he goes Ugh. um and then laurie who had found out in the book she saw um that loomis's book in an advertisement in the bookstore so she goes isn't, and sees it isn't gets that it. horrible she's just walking down the street yep. <laughs> and, <laughs> and then and she sees the book from right from the book from the book she is Michael I... Myers' sister
1: as if this woman hasn't been through enough. And, you know, I say that not as a complaint, but to uh, as a compliment of how, <laughs> you know, the trauma just keeps piling on for this character.
0: Yeah. And so she essentially runs from home, uh, runs away from home, and but decides to come back after a night of drinking and being at a party where Michael also shows up and kills a few people at a party. Yeah. But that's kind of irrelevant. I mean... <laughs> None of this really connects to the main story, <laughs> so it's kind of irrelevant. It's yeah. just increasing the body count, essentially. Exactly. But Lori goes home, discovers Annie is dying. Um, once again, poor Danielle Harris, naked, covered in yeah. slash marks from Michael, on the floor, mm-hmm. dying. And um, Laurie has her friend call nine one one, but Michael kills her friend and then kidnaps lori and disappears bracket finds out what happens so he rushes home annie dies in his arms and we get what i think is one of the best moments of the film is brad durif holding annie screaming in grief and the way the Mm -hmm. camera just does not like flinch away from that just Mm -hmm. lingers on that shot Mm -hmm. is very heartbreaking and tragic that that this is going to sound mildly morbid but
1: hey we're screening a rob zombie movie here so <laughs> i yeah. um the theme the score that's used for uh sheriff Brackett's grief is very moving it was very it was very well done the the music too for this for this movie the score i have to say is is really sophisticated it's it's a lot more thoughtful than you
0: might get from a movie of this kind of brutality mm-hmm, for sure and then what transpires here is what's different in the theatrical versus the director's cut from this point to the end so i'll start with the director's cut since this is mm-hmm. the way that zombie prefers and it's also what joe had seen mm-hmm. when we screened it together so Lori wakes up in a shed that michael has taken her to and she is now in some sort of shared hallucination with Michael. She sees the white horse. She sees um, Sherry Moon Zombie. She sees, as Deborah, she sees young Michael who is holding her back and restraining her while Sherry Moon Zombie's character, Deborah, is telling her to call her mommy. Yeah. um, And basically acknowledge that she's part of this family. Loomis realizes that he's been an asshole and realizes that he kind of is responsible for this huge fuck up and stuff. So he calls bracket and asks to help out and shows up at the shed Uh, along with all the police he goes into the shed to try to speak to michael he sees laurie there he tells michael basically to let laurie go Mm -hmm. and laurie's crying saying she can't move because she's being restrained and luma says there's nobody holding you there it's all just in your head Mm -hmm. michael basically punches him through a wall <laughs> uh, Loomis through a wall, and yeah. then he and he yell, yells, "Die!" So we get adult M- Michael Myers speaking for the only time in the entire franchise. Yeah, he says, "Die!" And then he gets shot to death by the police, leaving Lori alone in there. She picks up Michael Myers' mask, puts it on, picks up his knife, and is about to go. And leaves the shed, is standing outside over the body of Michael and Loomis, holding the knife. When the police shoot her, as she's dying, she hallucinates being in a mental institution of some sort, uh, where she is comforted by the vision of Deborah Myers, the White Horse, and all that. And now you're saying she. she...
1: Okay, so she that part was unclear to me.
0: Yeah. It's supposed to be left a little ambiguous, but it's clear that she was supposed to die from being shot oh. in the theatrical version version. I see. She comes out with the mask on and instead of shooting her, skips right to the scene with her in the mental institution. So it implies oh. that she is still alive. Whereas right. this one, they um, want her to be dead. And so that's, so that's one of the reasons why the theatrical release was changed was because they did not want... Um, the franchise has this bad problem of shooting itself in the foot for longevity by killing off Michael or killing off Lori. Right. So it's like, well, now if Loomis, Lori, and Michael are dead yet again, we can't have that. So that's why they, the theatrical version is more ambiguous purposefully than the director's cut.
1: Although the director's cut ending... That's that's a significant change. It really gives a different dimension to Laurie's ultimate fate. Besides the fact, um, is she dead or is she not? There's there's so much to unpack there. Yeah. Um, maybe I'll bring that up during our theological portion of
0: the show. Yep. Yeah. So that's <laughs> that's essentially a movie. I think this was our fastest run through of a movie, but <sighs> which is odd
1: because. I just felt like the movie just it wouldn't end. <laughs> I, I mean, I had I had that feeling for the first Halloween as well, but I I actually like
0: that. <laughs> the first one as in nineteen seventy eight, or the first? Oh, one Oh no, of zombies? Uh,
1: the first one of zombies. Yeah, I I will have to say though that I don't know. Maybe this is sacrilege. I I I think I like the zombie Halloween two better than the Carpenter Halloween two. <laughs>
0: really that's interesting so yeah. we'll get to our reviews in a, a little bit but mm. that's interesting you say that i love the hospital chase scene in the beginning i will say that i think that is better than rick rosenthal's yes and it kind of is a nice homage to the original the zombie has said that it's not meant that way but it, it to me it feels kind of in the continuity and trying to be in continuity and share some of the same moments from the second one mm-hmm. uh so so that's One of the better parts of the movie, I think, is the hospital chase scene. And then what follows is just, like, this jumbled mess of some good stuff, like the grief and the recovery of trauma, but just told in such a way that is so... It's not told well, I don't think. Like, it's... I think it shows... Lori, authentic like as close as you can get in fictionalized portrayal someone right. living with ptsd and dealing with trauma and having those dreams and all that stuff and yet it tells it in this it kind of wraps it in the story that just i don't think does that justice does Lori justice does trauma survivors justice so
1: right and uh uh the difference between Zombies Halloween 2 and the original Halloween 2, I think, is Lori just has a lot more to do. Um, I love Jamie Lee Curtis. You know, she is. she's going to be the screen queen for me. She's always going to be uh, the face of Halloween after Michael Myers. But she didn't really have a lot to do in Halloween 2. And, I mean, she is such a great actress that you could read the trauma from her facial expressions mm-hmm. but she spends most of the time in the hospital bed and yeah. so what scout taylor compton's lori does for me is her trauma is is it's acted out it's external uh, she's letting the whole world knows how she feels in that respect pace she reminds me a lot of samara from the ring oh wow, uh, yeah because Samara wanted everyone to know what happened to her and um you know with Laurie maybe this is not she might not necessarily want everyone to know what happened to her but you know she's letting she's expressing that trauma very much outwardly and so that's what i liked about uh scout taylor compton's take on laurie in this movie
0: another connection to the ring is doesn't a horse feature prominently in the ring as well it
1: it did actually now that you bring it up and I can't remember yes yes it did actually it it's it was one of the <laughs> I'm laughing because it's said so... you know how when you you haven't thought of something in a while then you think about it for two seconds and it's like an information dump all of a sudden mm-hmm. and so yeah uh, a horse did feature prominently prominently in um in the ring and, and it did have some significance as well yeah you're
0: you're right <laughs> uh. Um, maybe there's some foreshadowing there for our eagle-eared listeners about future film we might cover this season. No more comment than that. (laughs) Yes, definitely. Um, but anyway, so let's see. Uh, yeah, I, I think there are things that I definitely like about this movie. Like I said, I do not think it's awful by any stretch of the imagination, Hmm. but I really do not like how much of a thing that both halloween films by zombie have this obsession with torturing women while they are topless. yeah to the point where that's becoming like the whole strip club scene was unnecessary in this film it really was aside from like upping the body count so it's like and then to also have danielle harris once again be murdered this time while she's drawing a bath for herself so she's nude again it's just like right do we have to it it
1: it really it really speaks to the disjointed nature of of this movie uh one of the one of the uh criticisms that i found when i was uh googling different reviews uh for halloween 2 and generally rob zombie style overall is and i think this is a direct quote but I'm going to try and reconstruct it like that. Rob Zombie has flashes of brilliance that are weighed down by like other things. And it, and I like the expression flashes of brilliance because that's exactly what we get from Halloween two And, and, and the first Halloween, because there are moments where there are scenes that are so brilliant and movingly told. And when I say moving, I, and meaning sentimentality, but also conveying horror. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, that uh, it seems shocking when the movie moves on to something of lesser quality. And wh- one thing that I think was interesting about Halloween two is that the whole dream sequence that you had talked about that was like the cold open of the movie. And mm-hmm. it's one of those, it's one of those styles where that part of the movie should be its own movie like what star trek did in 2009 for the the abrams reboot that was a fantastic opening to that movie and it could have been its own movie and um i don't know if there's a name for this if there's a name in the the film industry for this but uh yeah i really like the cold open for halloween too i i thought from beginning to finish that opening worked well And then the rest of the movie is definitely more along the
0: flashes of brilliance vein. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I want to also say, I mean, there's, it's clear that there seems to be a few mixed messages here. Mm -hmm. Um, One of which is with the Loomis storyline, there seems to be this commentary that is being told about fans of the horror genre. Mm-hmm. There's this um, fan who comes in to sign Loomis's book and is going on about how great serial killers are in a way that is supposed to, I think, be pointing to the audience, being like, look at what you all sound like when you talk about how great Michael Myers is. But then it's like, but you're making a Michael Myers film, so, <laughs> and you're profiting off of it. Exactly. So aren't you essentially... Loomis when you do that, zombie. Like, aren't you putting your aren't you casting yourself then as Loomis in your commentary? Right. So right. there's that piece, which I find strange. Um, but then the other thing Zombie has said in line with that is like when he doesn't try to have inventive kills in this film so much as he wants the kills to just be brutal and uncomfortable. Mm. And so it kind of goes back to what we were talking about last week with the gritty realistic approach of the Halloween reboot. But I have to say. Michael just stabbing mercilessly away at the victims. Right. Very uncomfortable in this film. And it works in a way that is horrifying and really like almost nauseating in a way that I think grounds the slasher film in that when so many of the other slasher films, kind of like Zombie or anybody else was saying, like the kills become what you go to watch because you want to see what innovative way they kill people. But no, in this film, Michael kills almost every single kill is the same with a knife, just slashing repeatedly. Yeah, and it so it's not innovative; it's just gruesome. And I think yes. that's one of the points zombies trying to make about that as well. It's like we shouldn't be celebrating the murders here. It should be horrifying. It shouldn't be necessarily entertainment.
1: Okay, well, you know that that. <laughs> That makes all those brutal uh, deaths make a little more sense to me. My first reaction was uh, that all of those killings and, and and the upping of the body count really seemed um, in line with zombies' uh, inability to make anything cohere. And because... Uh, what I was getting at least the, fir- the first time around before your great analysis pace was that these killings were straddling the boundary between a uh, conventional slasher movie and body horror. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking that it, it touched body horror because they were so brutal and you could see, you know, the victim reacting and, and the, the, the total destruction that was being done to their bodies but yet and i'm familiar with uh the body horror subgenre it it isn't body horror and but yet it's too gruesome to be a conventional slasher thing and so that's, that is what was infuriating to me it's I, while i was watching the movie the first that initial time in my head i was thinking zombie make this clear like I, you know, that's... What are you trying to do here? But I like your interpretation taste because it finally gives me, like, a definition.
0: Thank you. Yeah, that's, again, from Taking Shape It, the um, researchers of the book pulled together some interviews and stuff with Zombie and all that, so you can kind of get some of his thinking into it. But like you were saying, though, like a lot of it is just muddled and muddied. So a lot of these Mm -hmm. themes we can talk about of course like with anything any sort of media or reading anything um we won't go too much into the debate as to whether or not the author is dead but there is a point to like if any sort of media is what the participant or the viewer watcher reader of it yeah interprets it to be so um so i do find it interesting what zombie wanted to had in mind as he was making or at least has said he had in mind but when we watch the finished product there's still just a lot in this that just doesn't quite jive together and right. that's kind of my first criticism that's kind of my criticism of halloween um 2007 as well as it just seems like his he has a clear vision and he certainly has intelligent the intelligence to communicate that vision but the problem is part of it is studio metal meddling part Mm. of it is just other constraints and some of it is I'm not sure his vision is as clear as he sometimes says it is in interviews because I, I just it just sometimes feels cobbled together to me
1: yes no that's a great uh expression cobbled together so much of this movie just feels cobbled together and I don't I didn't quite know what Zombie's vision was. In the first Halloween, there's a hint of it, you know, where he's uh, not just giving us this family background story of Michael Myers, but also kind of humanizing it in both a sentimental and a gritty way. And with Halloween 2, there are flashes of that. But there's also flashes of other styles and another direction that zombie might be and might have been trying to go through. And it's 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 just uh, uh, irritating to put put together. I think an example of this uh, that really bothers me is uh, the the way that Annie died and we saw some pictures. Right. And some video footage of a young Annie. And I remember you were asking if this was the real footage of a young Danielle Harris. And again, uh, that's something of zombie style that I like is that here's someone who was brutally killed who once used to be a human being. Mm -hmm. But like that moment lasted, what, two to three minutes? And it's buried in the rest of this cobbled together movie, as you said.
0: Yeah. And uh, one of the reasons that makes that moment so compelling to me is that, like I said, it doesn't flinch away from it and just yeah. kind of lingers on showing Brackett's grief and then kind of like you said, going to the flashback to that home video footage. Whereas in the theatrical cut, they really shortened that scene so it doesn't have that same impact, which is, again, one of the reasons why so many people prefer the director's cut. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um I don't know what else to say about this movie. Well, I'm it's I, I, I fe- think we can go into a deep dive, but I want well, to give you a chance to say anything else you have.
1: I, yeah, I would I think we would be remiss if we didn't mention that Laurie's reaction to Annie's death was also uh very emotional and for me it was yeah, yeah. it was quite moving. I think the take my first takeaway when we originally screened the movie and we were, we came upon that scene was I think Lori in her mind was going through all these people are dead because of me, or all these people are dead because of my fucked up family. Mm -hmm. Um, Whatever she might have been thinking. um, I think at that moment, she was finally internalizing and realizing the logics and the responsibility of all, all of these, these killings. And I think the guilt was was finally weighing on her. This is all my interpretation, of course. I, because, yeah, uh, you know, we we don't really know what was going on through Laurie's mind, but her reaction, um, and just the way Scout Taylor Compton was bringing Laurie to life in that scene of witnessing, you know, Annie uh, being dead, uh, you could really tell that there was a mixture of mourning. And and grief, and if this if this sounds to our audience a little like we might be assigning too many feelings to um, a Halloween, to especially a horror movie, I want to point out that Rob Zombie did that. That's one of the good things that he has accomplished with, uh, you know, the first Halloween movie and this one. He. He makes you have feelings about a slasher movie. That is no mean feat. <laughs> so I'm yeah. gonna give that to him. Um, but yeah, uh, both Sheriff Brackett and Lori had really moving reactions to Annie's death. Uh, i I do agree with you it's it's unfair that she had to die with her boobs all up in the open like that. but yeah what are you gonna do? We gotta yeah. when it comes when it comes to Rob Zombie, I feel like we have to compromise. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I mean that's something too. Which is weird about this is some of the behind the scenes lore is I think Annie's character was going to be murdered off screen, and so mm. they were going. So essentially, Laurie is going to come home and find that. Basically, it was going to play out the same: Laurie coming home and finding the house had been torn apart, and then seeing Annie on the floor covered in blood. But yep. Danielle Harris um, said. Apparently, she told Zombie that she wanted her uh, character to have, if this is how she's going to go out of both the franchise and also her character go out. But she, as an actress, as Danielle Harris, wanting to leave the franchise, she wanted to do it in this confrontation with Michael. So they filmed the more elaborate death scene for her. And so then that makes it, to me, it sounds like Danielle Harris was okay and had a lot of agency in how she wanted Mm. her character to be killed and if that's the case like great but still it's like it's the same it's like we saw the same character get brutalized in the same way in the first film she didn't die then of course she comes back it just it's this is to me where the line, the line starts to veer a little bit off of you can say all these great things zombie about how you want to people not to celebrate the deaths of characters and stuff and then yet you have at least two or is it three characters who die without their tops on in this film yeah. um, and like make a point to really show that and to like turn the deaths almost into like a pornographic sequence right. and I think that's intentional too but then again that goes back to this muddied think like what are you saying then you know yeah. what is is there some sort of point that you're trying to make what is it if there is i don't exactly. know it just it just comes across to to me as a fan of the franchise as a um and as somebody who i would say is fairly progressive in my outset but still am able to enjoy Slasher, <laughs> yeah. which are riddled with so much sexism and all that stuff i still right. find it's just a problematic piece of yeah. this film it it goes overboard. So, but I don't want to harp on that too much uh, beyond yeah. what I just said. Um the the other thing I want to say about Annie and Lori that uh is I like how it problematizes their relationship in this yes. showing them that they both went through this traumatic experience. Sometimes that can bring closer to pe- sometimes it can bring people closer together. Other yeah. times it can push them further apart and we kind of see their relationship disintegrating. Mm-hmm. Um because of their own trauma, but also because I, I like the one argument that Danielle Harris's character Annie has with Lori, where Lori is complaining about everything that happened to her because of what of Michael Myers, like her parents were killed, all that stuff. And then Annie retorts something like, You think you're the only one who has problems? And she's right. like pointing at her face where you can see the scars from yeah. uh Michael. Attacking her in the first film, so it just yeah. so so I like that. That was another one of those realistic character moments. I thought. Yeah, yeah. Uh,
1: well, and uh, uh, going to what you said about how trauma can really create tension uh, between the folks who have suffered it together. Uh, it's interesting that. Ultimately, we're shown that even though Annie is stressed out uh, by carrying not just the weight of her own trauma, but Lori's as well, uh, for me, my interpretation is Annie will be there for you at the end. She is a ride or die. And Mm -hmm. we saw that when, uh, you know, Lori was screaming at her at the dining table and then she gets sick and then she runs up to the bathroom and... And Annie follows her grudgingly because, mm-hmm. only because her father said, you gotta take care of Lori. And Annie's like, I've always been taking care of Lori. But she goes up there anyway. And um, after Lori has finished uh, vomiting, uh, Annie is holding her. And I'm, I'm right. like, you know, it's not, and this is an instance where it's okay to for things to not be black and white, you know, contrasted with the Uh, murkiness of the rest of the movie and Rob Zombie's style because uh, you know when you've gone through those kinds of experiences uh, there's there's no right or way to right or wrong way to do it Mm -hmm. I mean you've you've experienced grief I've experienced grief and the one thing that we're always told is there's no right way to do this and so Mm -hmm. um and so, like there, there, there are going to be times when the friendship between Annie and Laurie seems like it's going to be over, but then there they are holding each other, like less than half a foot away from fresh vomit. <laughs> so,
0: yeah. You know. Well, that's a good point too. I, I want to be clear that it's not. I'm not making a, a stance against ambiguity in film. I think that's yeah. fine. Yeah. I don't think that. I don't think this is well thought out ambiguity so much as it right. eating themes being played out. Yes. But, Good but Nevertheless, I, I think that um, I, I do like a lot of the intentional ambiguity here about certain things like you were saying. Yeah. Um, and, and one of the things that I love too is we don't see how Michael came back. He was shot in the head at the end of Halloween, 2007. And here he is up and walking around eating dogs shows a very graphic scene of him eating a dog in this film no it's hinted at it throughout no. the entire franchise but this one we get to see it full out yeah what but um he... but yeah we yeah. don't know how michael survived for the past two years what he's been up to how he survived that shot to the head and it's fine right. to leave that ambiguous just like yeah but then other things is like maybe there could have been at least a little thought more thought put into right more mindfulness (laughs) Uh, Uh, the the tidbit that you shared
1: about how danielle harris had some agency in how her character was gonna go out especially wanting for annie to you know have a confrontation with michael it uh it kind of um takes me back to the Thorn trilogy when little Danielle Harris was playing little Jamie, Jamie Lloyd, and I believe there was a scene where she and Michael come face to face and little Jamie says Uncle. Did that happen? <laughs>
0: yeah. And so I, yep. I, I, I think that's an interesting parallel. Yep. Yeah, I I don't know, Danielle Harris, such a great actress. Yeah, um, I love her. In this film as well. Uh Th- this movie, really, I will say that the talent. This movie does not lack for talent in its actors. Right. I mean, uh, Malcolm McDowell is fantastic, of course. Kind of playing <laughs> a uh, fictional version of himself, perhaps, from what people have said about him behind the scenes. I don't know. No disparagement towards him, but he's he's, he's quite smarmy. He does it very well. <laughs> yeah, um, he did. He did. And like you said before about Brackett, fantastic yes um by brad Dorf. uh S- scout taylor compton once again fantastic acting here mm-hmm. So uh, she definitely brings a unique angle to laurie yeah um and i do like that it goes such a different direction than other versions of laurie because you can't replicate jamie lee curtis so it's better it's best to go off in your own direction and then um even our two minutes of Academy Award winner Octavia Spencer. <laughs> yeah. So so much so much was said in that in those two minutes with yeah, Miss Octavia.
1: Yeah. <laughs> at any rate, at any rate, that was an interesting movie. <laughs> yeah. So uh,
0: yeah, deep dive.
1: What do you say? Theological discussion deep dive. Yeah. Is that where we're going? Ah. Uh, I don't know, what are your thoughts? I have some, uh, but I'd like to hear your
0: thoughts first. One of the things that's kind of recurring in this particular entry in the film is this, like the post line, uh, try that again, the line on the poster, the tagline for the film um, says, family is forever. Mm. And so there's something in this film it, when it shows this kind of like, psychic connection that laurie has to michael of kind of like are you responsible for the sins of your parents for the sins of your sibling is there some sort of gene that passes along in this murderous family with michael myers that somehow corrupting laurie or corrupting her in a sense is she is it inevitable that she is going to end up similar to michael which she does in this film like she ends up dead just like her brother she ends up picking up the knife and donning the mask and kind of going having um, some sort of mental break it doesn't really explain it well but like something happens to her psyche here and is that be- some is that because of some sort of family resilience and so the bible does talk about this kind of stuff a little bit Um, there are passages in the Bible that talk about how God remembers sin Mm, um, uh and that sin will basically pass down from generation to generation. Yeah, Um, And we, of course, get the central to much of Christianity's teaching um, of original sin, basically the idea that all humans are born with some sort of inherent predisposition towards sin that is a result of the the first sin that took place in the garden of eden adam and eve and then it's passed down from generation to generation this predisposition towards sin um or this tarnish on somebody's soul that base of sin on their soul that prevents them from ever fully being like fully righteous or um fully without sin and so so that's so so there's that aspect there um of course the point of the bible passages when it says sin passes down from generation to generation is to contrast that with God's mercy whereas God says I may remember sin down to the uh I can't remember the seventh generation or ever but my mercy endures forever. And so it's kind of yeah. this compare and contrast thing. So so it, and then we also get jo- the story in Job where um his friends say, who sinned, this man or his father, that all these things are happening and trying to say that somebody in Job's life or Job himself must have sinned. And yeah, mm. of course, Job was blameless. And that's kind of the point in that book. So even that notion within the scriptures is kind of problematized. And then, of yeah. course, the original sin um the thing i want to say about that is it's one of the best metaphors for original sin today i think is to look at the way that structural sin plays a role in all of our lives so i think about the ways in which i am a white person so i benefit from my white privilege and i benefit from the living in a racist society that Mm. And certain privileges over against people of color that's not something i chose i do not choose to be white i do not choose some like i don't choose basically that i am more likely to end up and uh leave a police confrontation for a speeding tick or something alive than somebody who is a black man for instance right. these are not choices i make and yet by participating in this web of racism and this web of white privilege and all this stuff that our society is I nonetheless am benefiting from it so that is kind of a a good metaphor for original sin to say it's not so much that you're being blamed for the sins of your parents but it's we as people live in this society that is corrupted by the sins of what has happened in the past whether it is sins of capitalism sins of racism sins of sexism sins of all sorts of isms um, ableism stuff like that And so we all kind of benefit or are harmed by this. And it's something that we kind of can't escape on on our own. And which is why we need the intervention of Jesus and God's grace to come in and kind of rescue us from ourselves. So um, Mm -hmm. all of that very long wordiness is my, (laughs) what I pulled from this movie, basically. Yeah. This notion of original sin and how sin can kind of pass down from generation to generation and how that kind of connects to Laurie's story. Yeah. Um, What about you? What, what were your thoughts?
1: Well, I mean, first of all, I loved your analysis uh, because it was, it was, Your analysis was deeply theological, but this really connects to lived experience, you know, Uh, the passing down of sin from generation to generation and all the different consequences that we have to deal with this in our lived experience. I think that your analysis was really... Was theological as well as pastoral. So, bravo. Um, <laughs> my takeaway phase was a little more hardcore theology, and I'm going to read a little um, a passage from John, and maybe you might see where I'm going with this, maybe not. So, <clears throat> so I'm reading from uh, John chapter one verse fifteen, um, which says john bore witness of him and cried out saying this was he of whom i said he who comes after me is preferred before me for he was before me no one has seen god at any time the only begotten son who is in the bosom of the father he has declared him so we in christian tradition it's pretty much common knowledge that the coming of Christ was prophesized. There are hints all over uh, the First Testament, right? Or the Old Testament, rather, is how Christians conventionally refer to it. So, yeah, it, it, there, uh, there are um, references in the Old Testament uh, that, uh, you know, that basically say Christ is going to be here. Uh, uh, there's, uh, I can't remember the wording exactly, but some say there will be a figure, uh, you know, who will appear and uh, save mankind in in some way or heal mankind. And and those those visions, those prophecies are attributed to the arrival of Christ. And so that's pretty much common knowledge. But maybe maybe you might have picked up on how I'm going on a th- different theological strand. Maybe even Matt might know. Uh, but what I pulled from Halloween 2, and I'm not sure if this movie deserves this kind of theological <laughs> theological analysis. I may even be overthinking, quite honestly. But I was thinking of the, con- the theological concept of the pre-existence of Christ. How his arrival is not just um prophesized but that he was present before his incarnation so these yes. these prophecies that we're getting about uh about Christ it's not just saying this is going to happen it has happened Christ is already here he just needs to be incarnated um and so i know that maybe for a lot of our listeners that might be too deeply theological but the concept of the preexistence of Christ and i'm not i'm not i'm no, not I'm disparaging anybody if yeah.
0: you're if you're listening to our podcast uh, already i think you have a predisposition or a predisposition <laughs> for liking deep theology so i wouldn't worry about that
1: and <laughs> you know, i i i you know i want to apologize if this is really going over people's heads um, it's something that I'm still studying as well and so this is only my surface level understanding of this concept which by the way I am researching on my own Um, so this notion of the pre-existence of Christ that Christ has always been here it helps me fill the gap of Michael Myers existence because what Rob Zombie was trying to do with these two Halloween movies was you know give him a background, right? Give Michael Myers a background. And, uh, you know, there were I know there were mixed reactions to humanizing him and giving him a, a family background that sort of led to this Michael Myers phenomenon. But what the theological notion of the pre-existence of Christ does for me is, is se- says, well, did Michael Myers necessarily have to come from somewhere? What if he was? He's already been present all this time, and this—you know—this murderer who will not die <laughs> is just the embodiment of of that which
0: was already in existence. <laughs> That's interesting. I like. That. We get that. I think, especially in the original timeline right, with the Thorn Trilogy and all that. With Loomis's proclamations about Michael being some sort of evil mm-hmm. that kind of seems to have always existed in some form or another. Yeah. And then with when we get the curse of Michael Myers, with we get that explanation that the cult of Thorn has always existed and has yes. always needed this kind of sacrifice. Yes. So yes. I like that. I yeah, like and- your interpretation.
1: <laughs> Thanks, Pace. Uh even at the end of uh, the director's cut of Halloween two with the Ambiguous ending of Lori's fate, uh, where you said that in the director's cut, uh, it's pretty much that she's died, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so if she is dead, <laughs> and her life, her afterlife is continuing in that little room where uh, Ghost Deborah and the White Horse are coming to meet her. For me, theologically speaking that's the realm of pre-existence. Mm-hmm. So, Laurie could we could argue, especially for fans who are who are really into Laurie, like super fans, super stanning, who don't want her to die in any iteration played by any actress. We that ending could say at least theologically, Laurie is going to come back. She might be emb- she might be embodied in a way that's different from the Laurie we knew. But Lori is not dead. She continues to exist. <laughs> so I don't know. I that's literally what I was thinking when I was watching the movie. The phrase pre-existence of Christ popped into my head. I know that there's only one of you out there, if any, who have this reaction to
0: the movie. No, I dig it. Um, yeah. one of the, something that I would encourage our listeners to look at is one of my favorite um of the church documents there are three ecumenical creeds we have the nicene creed the apostolic creed and there's a third one that many people don't know about it's called the athanasian creed it is very long it is very confusing i've heard it referred (laughs) to as the masturbatory creed because it is the type of creed where the theologian is just masturbating to his um using his intentionally here uh because um it's almost assuredly written by men but just kind of masturbating (laughs) to their own power of their own rational thought or that kind of thing it's so so basically saying that in a disparaging way but nonetheless um the athanasian creed all that is long story to say it is very concerned about proving that Jesus is co-eternal with the father and therefore pre-existent before he was incarnate in the person of Jesus on earth for the 30 some years of his life ministry. And so, um, so yeah, so, so look that up if you are intrepid and feel like reading something that's like 10 pages long. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's fascinating.
1: Uh yeah, yeah. No, I, I maybe I will read that uh and come back to
0: it in a future future episode. Hmm. Um if this even makes it off the editing floor, we'll see. <laughs> sometimes, <laughs> sometimes our deep dives go a little long and so I yeah. so Matt and I basically figure out how to cut it down, usually cutting down my right. rambling, because I tend to right. monologue about theology. That's what I do as a PhD.
1: You know, you know what a great edit uh, would be for this particular deep dive would be uh, for Matt to just interrupt my part with his own audio and saying, TLDR theological crap or something like that. No, that's just that's I'm just joking. <laughs> Love it.
0: Okay, well, anything else? I like I like where we went with that. So we have... Yeah. This idea of ger- generational sin and original sin. And we have mm-hmm. this idea of this um, pre existent Christ. Mm-hmm. Yeah. that
1: um, I mean, and it, it speaks to this continuing challenge of defining Michael. And why are you like this? I mean, how many people have we been annoyed by? And our first question is why are you like this? <laughs> Where yes. did you come from? Joe, why are you like this? Not kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> um, yeah. Any any other closing thoughts from you? Or?
0: Nope. Uh, so what would you rate this film?
1: Man, how many jack-o'-lanterns does this movie deserve? I think I'm going to put it parallel to my Letterboxd review, which only gives five stars. But we're doing ten jack-o'-lanterns is our measuring yes. stick here, right? Yeah. Uh, two. Two jack-o'-lanterns out of ten. <laughs>
0: wow.
1: <laughs> That's low. Oh,
0: yeah. I love it. See, uh, I, mm-hmm. for me, I think it's going to be three... A little bit higher than you, but still, it's not that high. It's not great. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. Um, and then my favorite kill...
1: <laughs> my favorite kill is only only by virtue of an actor I recognized it happened in the dream sequence. It was the friendly security guard who, Mm. who had taken in Lori. And um, it was my favorite kill because the tension was there, even though you knew he was going to be a goner, right? Like he says, I'll be back. And you know, that's one of the rules of you die in a horror movie. But there was something about that where the tension was still ramped up. Like, in a way that made me think maybe he won't die. Maybe I'll be wrong. Of course he did die. Um, but that was a enjoyable moment for me, I guess, mm-hmm. if that's the right word. It's like like I said, you know, these movies, mm-hmm. especially horror movies, are, are roller coasters. And so mm-hmm. I enjoyed that moment in a kind of a roller coaster way um and finally i i enjoyed it just because i recognized that actor as being in an iconic episode of star trek the next generation called the inner light we oui. <laughs> hey hey i didn't mention general hospital at all during Until this now. episode <laughs> <Now he did. laughs> okay
0: what's your favorite kill do you have one i don't there's not much in here like I kind of said as we were going through it a lot of the kills are purposefully meant to be just kind of gruesome and boring with just the bunch yeah. knife slashes so there's that yeah. I do think that just the entire hospital sequence in the beginning is pretty great all yes. the kills in conjunction with that including Octavia Spencer but like you said the security guard as well even the poor oh I know what my favorite death is it's the mooter of the death of the cow <laughs> As it gets hit by the ambulance. Like, you just know that poor cow's going out.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: So. Mm -hmm. um, They never
1: have, it it never
0: works out for them in the movies. (laughs) So our next movie, we are leaving behind the gritty realness of Halloween and Halloween 2. And going into yet another take on Halloween. David Gordon Green's Halloween 2018. So that'll be next week. That's exciting. I'm I'm looking forward to that. Yep, yep. And um <laughs> just so you know, listener, when they come out in theaters, assuming our podcast is still around, knock on wood, but we're having fun, so we're not going anywhere. Heck um, but, yeah. Uh we'll we'll try to cover Halloween kills and Halloween ends as they come out in theaters too. So we can kind of leave our um Halloween series to be concluded after next week, but um, we'll get through 2018 and have a retrospective of what we've covered so far.
1: It's it's an ambitiously planned uh, upcoming trilogy. Well, the first Halloween is already out with Jamie Lee Curtis, and then the next two are going to follow in succession. I am a little bit leery of the movie title Halloween Ends. (laughs) Does
0: anything really end in this franchise? I know. (laughs) When we have in every... Um, we have, uh, in the big three alone, we yeah. get um, Freddy's Dead, The Final Nightmare. <laughs> and then, does Freddy return after that? Oh, yeah. And yeah. then we get Jason Goes to Hell, and we also get, uh, Jason Goes to Hell The Final Friday. There were yeah. more Friday the 13th after that. <laughs> and also, Friday the 13th Part 4 um, was called The Final Chapter, and yet <laughs> there is a Part Five, Six, Seven, Eight after that, so... These things don't have a very good um, <laughs> tradition of staying over. Staying dead. Or or dead. <laughs> they keep coming back.
1: Oh, I, I, I can hear, I can hear Austin Powers' voice saying, "Why won't you die?" And it's ironic <laughs> because he's played by Mike Myers, <laughs> right?
0: Did I talk about that in H. Show? I think I did. Where they wanted to have him cameo yes I you, love you did that. mention that you did and it didn't work out for whatever reason i think because mike myers is like uh hell no
1: yeah yeah well you know when when h2o when h2o came out uh the austin powers franchise was really taking off so you know mike myers was
0: doing his own thing <laughs> yep. Yep.
1: did you have any other concluding thoughts, space
0: Nope, I think we're ready for our outro.
1: Yeah, sounds like that. that is it for our show. Our theme music was by Matt May, who also edited this episode. Horror Nerds at Church releases every Thursday. Please comment, rate, and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram at Horror Nerds at Church. We're also on Twitter at HNAC Pod for all the latest updates about upcoming films, news, and other announcements. Until next time, if you should find yourself driving down a long, lonely road, the road of life, and you come to a stray cow lingering in the road, you're probably...
0: In a Rob Zombie dream sequence, <laughs> <laughs> or you're in Twitter and the cow's about to get blown away by a tornado. Did you just say Twister. you're in Twitter? You did say, I did I'm in Twister. You're in Twister. Twister. <laughs> you're also in Twitter. Um, apparently, yes. I guess I don't know. Yes. Yeah, well, I mean,
1: yeah, I could, I could, I could bring a cow into Twitter. Sure, why not? <laughs> Until next time, y'all. Bye. Bye. Ah!